Welcome, wealthy teachers. Today we have Dr. Katie Linder with us, and I am super excited about this interview because it has been a long time coming. She has been on my shortlist for some time. Um, as you know, we paused the podcast for just a bit, uh, but we are back in full force, and Katie is going to be an excellent conversation today. She is a woman who has created many courses, has served many academics, and um, has her, her feet both in academia and in um, online teaching. So we're really excited to chat with you today. I'm excited too. It's really good to talk with you, Lindsay and Derek. Thanks. Yeah, glad you're here. (laughs) So why don't we just start with a little bit about um, your academic and your teaching background, just so people can get a feel for what you do, what you've uh, studied in the world, if you want, and what you're teaching. Sure. So um, I started out, my disciplinary home is women and gender studies. So I taught a lot in the humanities. I taught writing for several years um, and then eventually ended up kind of adjuncting in sociology departments and various places where women and gender studies gets housed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been a full-time administrator pretty much my entire postgraduate school career. Ah. So my teaching has never been consistent for that reason. It's kind of just been here and there as I get you know offered um, possibilities to teach. And for the past several years, as part of my day job, um, I have not been teaching at all. Um, so the teaching outlet within my business has been really helpful because I don't really have an option to teach as part of my work during the day. Ah, that is, yes. <laughs> that was always the thing with uh, going into admin work that I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I just watched a lot of professors go that way. And having an outlet online, I could see as totally helpful. Yeah, it's been really great. And I think it's a a helpful thing, too, to keep me kind of engaged in design work, which Mm. I really love doing. And I get to work with a lot of teachers and research a lot about online teaching and learning. Um, But keeping my hand kind of in the game of actually doing the teaching has been really fun. For sure. So what is your business then that you get to uh, enjoy teaching in? So um, a few years back, I launched my LLC and it houses a bunch of things. Um, It houses some online courses, which we can definitely dive into. Uh, It also houses um, a coaching practice where I do individual and group coaching and um, also my speaking and I author books. And so all of that is kind of housed under um, the same business. And um, it's grown a lot over the past several years. I've given, I've kind of nurtured it more. Um, I originally started doing speaking uh, as an offshoot of my day job in like 2012, 2013. Um, But I didn't really dive into the business, kind of taking it pretty seriously until the summer of 2016 and into that um, next fall. Was there any sort of catalyst that made you go, hmm, there's something here. (laughs) And if I watered it a little bit more, it could grow into something bigger. Yeah, well, it was definitely um, around the time that my second book came out. So Mm -hmm. I have a book on blended course design. Um, The first book I wrote was based on my dissertation and was kind of a traditional um, text that could be Mm -hmm. used in the classroom, but wasn't really kind of practical or faculty development oriented. My second book was very practical. It was a workbook style, and I knew that I would be able to do some speaking and workshops and things around it. And I had taken the year um, before that, like around 2015, basically off of my Mm. business because I had changed jobs. I knew I needed to dive deep into launching the research unit that I currently lead. And so I wanted to make sure that I was giving time and attention to that. 
Um, and, but when that book came out, I was like, I, I know that I'm going to get some inquiries. Um, and so I need to figure out what am I going to do about that? So that's when I started talking with, um, my kind of the leadership at my institution to try to figure out how this would work for me to have a business and be, you know, doing the work that I was doing at the institution. And particularly because I work for a state institution, it was really important for me to have those conversations yeah. in a really open way. And so I started having those conversations and um, the business really grew from there. It started very much as a speaking and consulting business and quickly grew into a business where I was developing products and then eventually um, doing the coaching work. Ah, so the products came before the coaching? They did. Mm -hmm. I released Mm -hmm. my first um, product in the summer of 2017 and it was a webinar series. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was like my first thing that I was trying to sell. And I, <laughs> I sold it um, individually and with institutional memberships. And I sold that ah. product for a couple of years. It was called How to Academia. And I eventually turned that into some kind of mini courses and a master course um, that is one of the, the courses that I sell. So some of my courses actually started out as live webinars, and then I kind of redesigned them and re-recorded them as courses. So that's something that I think is kind of an interesting way. If you're not sure how to start yeah. with a course and you want to try to like test some ideas out with your audience, webinars can be one way to do that. And it can allow you to kind of slowly build up the content of what you would eventually put into a larger course. So that was my first product um, was that webinar series. And then I slowly built out some other courses, and then um, eventually earned my coaching certification in 2018. Oh, cool. Where'd you get certified? So I worked with a company that is out of Portland, uh, Oregon, because that's Mm -hmm. around where I live, called um, Coach Training EDU, and Mm -hmm. they offer certification through the International Coach Federation. So if anyone is who's listening is familiar with ICF, um, I went through kind of a full 125 plus hour training Mm -hmm. um, to do the whole the whole thing. So it took me a year, but it was Mm -hmm. super fun. Mm -hmm. Really cool. So yeah, we'll definitely drop some of those links um, in the show notes as well for people. Um, So (laughs) Derek, did you hear that part where she mentioned the institutional licensing? (laughs) I did. Yes. So (laughs) how, how does that work? Because lots of people ask us some about that question in particular. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That is the question I get all the time too. Um, and I often will jump on like a quick Skype call or something with someone just kind of talk through it. Um, so basic call, it will live forever on the interwebs and we can, exactly. (laughs) I'll just point people to this episode and say, go listen to that episode. This is where I talk about it. Um, so I use a course platform called Teachery and, Mm -hmm. Like very short story, this is a product that was created by Jason Zook. Yep. Jason Zook had created a product called By My Future, mm-hmm. which he then merged with his wife to be By Our Future, which is now called Wandering Aimfully, which yep. I'm sure you can link into the show notes. But I did indeed buy into his future, which basically allowed me to pay a flat fee and get access to Teachery for life. Cool. So I put everything on Teachery. I don't have to pay a monthly fee for it. I use it for my group coaching, for my courses, for everything. So um, Teachery has an option of basically doing a promo code that you can give to people. And Mm -hmm. so the way that I organize my institutional memberships is once an institution purchases a course and they purchase a certain number of licenses, I give them an institutional code and I give them kind of a certain number of accesses or instances that they can share depending on how many licenses they purchased. And then I give them directions to share with like their faculty. So they would email the faculty member and say, go to this website, put in your information, 
put in the institutional code and you don't have to put in any credit card information or anything like that. And it will give them access to the course for free. What that allows me to do is track the number of people who are coming into the course with a particular membership. I can actually like shut it down at any time Mm -hmm. if they go over their promo code or anything like that, or I can set a certain limit on it. It just kind of depends on how you set it up. Um, But it also allows me to add people with that promo code if they decide to add more licenses or anything along those lines. Hmm. So it's a really easy way to track what's going on with each institution, but also to make sure that they all just kind of can easily get into the course as quickly as possible. Sure. Because as soon as they purchase it, all I need to do is send them an email and, you know, create the code and, and they're ready to go. Sweet. So how do the institutions find you or, or do you reach out to the institutions? So this is a really good question. Um, it's a little bit challenging because a lot of my marketing goes out to centers for teaching and learning um, because a lot of the products I create are really focused on faculty development or educational development. And um, so I have a lot of contacts in that field just because I was in that field for quite some time. I directed a center for teaching and learning and I still go to the national conference, um, the pod conference that happens every year. Um, But I I have to be kind of careful because I can't actively market my work on like the pod listserv or by going to the conference because my institution pays for me to go to that Mm -hmm. conference on behalf Mm -hmm. of my institution. Hmm. So um, a lot of it actually happens word of mouth where people will say, does anyone have a product, you know, like that covers scholarship of teaching and learning, which is one of my main courses and people will who know that I have this product will like on my behalf share this um, on the listserv because it's a product that could be of interest to colleagues or I'll contact people kind of off list and say, you know, you may be aware that I have this. But the other thing that's been kind of interesting is it's been selling the biggest course I sell is called Sotal by Design which is kind of a soup to nuts course on how to create a scholarship of teaching and learning project and how to design it and um, implement it and disseminate it. And I get hired to speak and do workshops on this topic. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I get hired to go to a campus, I just make sure they know that I also have this product. And it's not uncommon for campuses to buy licenses for the product as part of the decision to have me come to their campus. So it just kind of depends on what people's needs are and what their goals are. Sometimes me coming face to face is going to be enough, but they often will want to build like a faculty learning community or something around that particular topic. And so they'll buy the course as part of that package. Interesting. So uh, I had another question because you said you spoke with your institution when you were starting your business to make sure everything was in place and okay with them. Did, was there any friction with with them? Did they put any restrictions on what you were allowed to do? It makes sense. They would front the money for you to go to a conference. You know, They don't want you pitching your services necessarily. But anything else that was kind of limiting or lack of freedom that maybe they imposed? Well, there's definitely, I mean, there are definitely constraints. Um, And part of it is because I do not have a faculty position Mm -hmm. um, at my current institution. I am a full-time administrator. And so I don't really have intellectual property rights in Mm -hmm. the same way that a faculty member would. So one of the constraints is if I want to write books and have them be negotiated, you know, by me in terms of the contracts and the intellectual property rights, I have to write them outside of my job here um, at my institution. And so I have written books on behalf of the institution. We recently released a couple edited collections that I did not negotiate the contracts for. I do not receive any royalties for. um, And they have my name on them, of course, because I did the work, but I'm not really getting anything in terms of like financial, you know, um, any kind of royalties or, or anything along those lines. 
but I've written several other books outside of my job mm-hmm. <laughs> because I have various, you know, things I want to say. And also because they don't necessarily fit within the realm of what I'm doing um, for my current job. So that's one constraint is kind of juggling kind of the intellectual property pieces. And I do, for example, host a podcast on behalf of my institution, but I also host a podcast on the side, which mm-hmm. allows me to, again, retain some of that intellectual property of what I want to be saying um, outside of my job. And it also allows me to market my business because I basically anything related to my institution, I don't market my business at all. So if I get sent to a conference and someone approaches me at the conference because they know that I'm a speaker or that I have other books or whatever, I will basically say, let's schedule a time not here mm. to talk. Um, and I'm happy to follow up with you. But, you know, like I'm here with my research director hat on. And so I can't really you know, set that aside and meet with you. And everybody seems to be very understanding about that. They know that this is kind of my full-time gig. And and I, I think everybody also understands kind of the constraints of a state institution and, and why we have those um, constraints in place is really to protect people mm-hmm. and make sure that, you know, we're not abusing our roles as working for a state institution in order to have that private benefit. So I have really tried to keep those things very separate. It's been really important to me to have clear boundaries between what I do for work and what I do for my business on the side. And um, this is why I've been incredibly transparent about it. So if I do take vacation to do something for my business, which is another kind of constraint, I can't do it on OSU time. I work for Oregon State. Um, then I have to basically give a reason of like why I'm taking vacation or, or whatever. And I always tell my boss, like I have a keynote and I'm, I'm traveling to a keynote. And so I'm very open. Um, Mm -hmm. And this also allows me to be very open on places like social media. I wouldn't want to not be able to share what I'm doing. So the more open and transparent I can be at work and um, about why I'm not there or what I'm working on, um, I don't have to worry about hiding anything. And that's always been something that I've never wanted to have to do. Like I, w- I want to be able to be one person mm. and not like, you know, Clark Kent during the day and Superman <laughs> at night, you know, like it doesn't make sense to me to try to split that. So um, yeah, I mean, it's it's something that I'm really open about and transparent about, but there are definitely constraints specifically around intellectual property and also making sure I'm taking vacation time to do this work on the side. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really good advice to just be mm-hmm. as as open and transparent with your institution as you can. Yeah. I was thinking about um how you decide your the boundaries because I think we we just had I mean, I've interviewed lots of people who, you know, obviously call it like juggling a side gig or like working on a passion project or however you want to label it, right? Um the the decision or the process of like, maybe it's productivity, maybe that's the best way to phrase it. But do you have um, a system that you use to say, okay, this is when my brain is for the college (laughs) and students and faculty. And then this is when my brain is is for my business. Have you how have you navigated that? That's a really good question. So one way that I've described it to other business owners who've asked me kind of something similar is that I just consider my day job to be my biggest client. So in the same way that if I'm working for a different client, like a speaking client or something, I'm not going to be trying to juggle that with another client. My day job is my day job. So, I mean, during basically when I come into work at eight and when I leave at five, like that is the time that's given to this client. And sometimes I'll squeeze something in over my lunch hour. I consider that to be kind of my private time. But um, other than that, I mean, it's basically 
I'm devoting this time to this client. I do take vacation um, in addition to kind of taking it for speaking and other things when I need to travel. I do take vacation for what I call creative retreats. Mm. And these happen at least twice a year, sometimes three times a year, where I basically take off um, a week and use the weekends on either side. So I get, you know, roughly nine days or 11 days, depending on where holidays fall. Um, And I will take that time to do a deeper dive into my business. And I consider those to be incredibly fruitful times. Mm. Um, It's very focused on planning, very focused on kind of strategically moving the business forward. Um, And I have one of those coming up in the first week of September as we record this. It's um, kind of early August. And I'll be spending that September revising two websites for my business. I'm also taking off two weeks at the very end of this calendar year to basically do a bunch of planning for 2020. So that's something that I've kind of used as a rhythm that allows me to kind of assign when I'm going to be doing pretty deep brain work around the business. Mm -hmm. Um, But other than that, I mean, I would say I'm working easily 20 hours or more a week on the business Mm. because a lot of my weekend time goes to client meetings. Um, It depends on the week. There were definitely weeks in the past where I was probably putting in an additional 40 hours um, on the side business. But for me, a lot of it is like design work, it's creative work, it's yeah. the podcast, it's, it doesn't feel like work to me, it feels like creative, you know, like, it's exhausting if you do t- too much creative work, but I also really enjoy it. So mm-hmm. it wasn't kind of a thing where I was forcing myself to do it, it very much felt like kind of a labor of love as mm. I was getting the business off the ground. So now it's a little more balanced. But I mean, I take client meetings most evenings, um, at least once. And then I, of course, have to find time to record the podcast and create new products and, you know, all those kinds of things. things. (laughs) So yeah, it just all gets fit into the margins. I mean, I'm lucky to have a really supportive partner who is also my partner in my business. And so, I mean, this is just something that we both believe in and we see it growing and we're happy to make that investment. That's great. Um, Do you, uh, in your, your teaching products do you show up for your students in like q a calls or office Mm. hours for them throughout the week yeah so this is a really good question i designed with one of my courses there's a quarterly live q a session um, and i also do monthly updates to that particular course it's the one that i'm doing kind of the most active um consistent development with and that is sotal by design The other courses I have, I definitely consider to be more passive income. I mean, if people want to reach out to me via email and have a quick session or something like that, I would absolutely do it. But it's not something that I'm actively as encouraging, you know, within the course. Whereas with Sotal by Design, I'm pretty hands-on because a lot of institutions are using the course for things like faculty learning communities. Mm -hmm. And so there are groups that are working through the course that I'm happy to like jump on a call with them or talk with the faculty development person who's running the program to make sure they're getting what they need and that the faculty are getting what they need. So for that course, I'm a lot more hands-on. I do have other things I offer. Like right now, I offer a mastermind for people who are academics and who are also working on side businesses. And that is a monthly live call that is kind of a mix of coaching and teaching. It kind of depends on what the topic is for the week that people want to dive into. And that comes with private coaching sessions with the members as well. So that's more of a high touch um, kind of um, product. And then the other thing I'm designing that's going to be a lot more live sessions is I'm actually in the process of creating a coaching training program for people who are in higher ed or who work specifically with higher education professionals um, or students. And so that's going to launch in early 2020 and will include 
like live training sessions every week with the participants who are involved in that training. So I've I've shifted over time to having more synchronous offerings, mm-hmm. um, especially as I've done more group coaching and and seen a need to do that. Yeah, it sounds like your your calendar is pretty full. You need a you need to be very very intentional with your hours throughout the week. It, it is really full. I mean, this yeah. is why I do the planning. I try to actually plan out all of my services and product launches for an entire year. Um, before the year starts. So that really helps me to juggle things and to know when I'm going to have free periods. um, And also when I can build in things like travel. Mm -hmm. So I mean, all of those things have to be balanced. And this year was actually the first time I really tested that Mm -hmm. I did a lot of the annual planning in late 2018 into early 2019. And it completely paid off. I mean, I've been I've been planning out social media campaigns and things like that, basically a quarter at a time. And it's been super helpful just to try to get as much of it done as possible in bulk ahead of time. And then I just kind of set it and forget it. So I do a lot of my content marketing planning, the podcast planning. A lot of that happens in advance. And um, it just allows me to have a lot more freedom throughout the year in terms of working with individual clients or with group coaching or training or other things I might offer. That's the goal. I mean, that right. takes a ton of organization. We're yep. working on it, but yep. that's that's exactly what you got to strive for is that much organization and forethought for sure. Yeah. Well, and it's definitely, it's after the model, if you know about online teaching and if you've mm-hmm. had experience with online teaching where you do a lot of the design up front and then you can spend your yep. time communicating with students, yep. um, but you're not worrying about kind of creating the videos and, you know, doing all the things in the middle of the term. It's very much like that. I'm right. really trying to front load the design of everything I do so that by the time I get to the point of running it, I'm really just focusing on the facilitation. And that allows me to give a lot more attention to my clients. That's a great way of describing that. I love that. (laughs) For sure. Do you have a a team? You said it's you and your husband, but is there anyone else helping you with, for example, social media posting or commenting, things like that? No. (laughs) Um, And I would say my husband too is very behind the scenes. He (laughs) likes to do, he's basically our system administrator. So he does a lot of the backend work and we do help clients design things like websites. And so he does work on the backend with that in terms of um, keeping those sites secure and running updates and backups and those kinds of things. Um, But I'm definitely the more front facing part of the business. And so I handle all of the social media I do all of our website design kind of on the front end. Um, so I design all of our websites. And then, um, yeah, I mean, we don't, we have some support with things like we outsource travel. So I have a travel agent um, who helps us to book, you know, flights and things like that when I have to travel. But other than that, I mean, I, I outsource transcripts for the podcast to a service called Rev. Yeah. Um, and I also used a script for that. Um, but yeah, it's pretty much me. I mm. mean, I, I'm running a lot of it. And it's interesting because I, I did have someone just reach out to me the other day about joining my team. And, and I was like, well, I don't really have one. Um, I mean, it, <laughs> it, it is my partner and I, and he definitely plays a role. But I've just built it up over time in such a way that, I mean, it looks like a lot and it sounds like a lot. And it kind of is. But because I started small and kind of slowly built it, it's definitely manageable. I mean, I feel like the systems we've put into place, I don't really feel overwhelmed um, by what we're doing. And I just kind of slowly add things and also take things away as I Mm. realize that, you know, they were part of the business at one point, but they were meant to be a stepping stone into something else and they're not there forever. So sometimes I sunset things as I'm adding new products just to keep things really balanced. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. Congrats. <laughs> <laughs> Does your partner also work full time as well? 
He does not. Mm. So um, he is a writer and um, we put me through grad school and then he basically worked as I was getting my career started. And then several years ago, um, he wanted to not work and yeah. try writing instead. And so we did that. Um, yeah. So it's been a really great thing. I, it's helpful to have a partner who is super flexible in terms of their schedule. Sure. So I can definitely kind of outsource or delegate the grocery shopping, the oil change for our car, you know, those kinds of things like that can easily go to him. And also it allows us to be a one car family, mm -hmm. which we always have been. Um, so there's just a lot of kind of conveniences that come along with it, but, um, he's a very creative person. He's also a very tech savvy person and used to work for a software company. And so oh, nice. all the stuff on the, the kind of back end with the technology, if I can't figure it out, he's my first, mm -hmm. you know, he's basically our in-house tech support for the business. I know how that goes. Is that why you're know, laughing, Derek? I am. I know that role. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. you know, it really helps businesses like make leaps forward because as much as, you know, even you're saying like, oh, I'm running it by myself, just having someone who um, is invested as you are, obviously, in the business sitting next to you to make the thing work, um, where I know, you know, some of my friends have run their business by themselves and their partner's not involved whatsoever. And so they have to hire a right-hand person. Um, it's one of the first hires you make, right, is some sort of like executive assistant or personal assistant because um, there's just the day-to-day -day can be a lot, a lot of the decisions we have to make. It's funny that you brought up like oil change and all of that stuff. We recently <laughs> hired a house like manager actually um, as a position. And that's literally what she does. She like runs our house. And so that is Derek and I are both not doing that now because he for a while, I that used was to. his role. Yeah, I was to make sure everything happened in the house, make sure everything gotten taken care of. We were also house sitting at the time. So we were planning travel and all that stuff. And he was in charge of that. And then he would do some tech stuff kind of on the side. But then when he fully came in, it was like his brain was so much more valuable than like some of the other things things we had him doing. So that's been a most recent hire for us as well. And it's, um, it, I'll tell you, it's been one of my most life-changing things that I've ever done for myself and for um, this business, I guess, is to have someone think about meal planning and, and prepping for us and, you know, running errands here and there. And it's been such a game changer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think at some point, I mean, like you can hear me describe, you know, I work a full-time job. Yep. I'm doing this business on the side. It's keeping me very busy. At some point, something has to give. Yep. I mean, like you, you do have to hire out for whatever yep. it might be, or you do have to have a supportive partner. And I think that, you know, for us, we have done some hiring for like house cleaning and things like that. But I've also really just in some ways relaxed my standards mm, of, you yes. know, like I'm not trying for perfection. Yep. We're not a couple that frequently, you know, has people over to our house, you know, like, um, we did use business income recently to renovate our kitchen, which we really mm -hmm. love. Awesome. Um, but you know, there's, I think that we're both introverted too. So it's like, we want to be in a space <laughs> that we can enjoy and mm -hmm. that we can feel comfortable in, but I'm not obsessed with it being squeaky clean all the time. You know, totally. like I, I've had to kind of pick and choose where do I want my energy to go? And right now I want it to go into creative things. Mm -hmm. And um, if that means outsourcing, you know, cleaning my house or, you know, something along those lines, we're happy to do it. And I think that part of the benefit of having side business revenue and a full-time job mm. is that you don't have to use your business revenue to pay your mortgage. You can afford to do some of these outsourced things so that you can free up your brain and your creative energy for things like the business. Mm -hmm. Is it your vision or goal to potentially leave the nine to five at some point? 
Not right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a question I get a lot, mm-hmm. especially as people have seen the business grow over time. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think it's one of those things where I don't want to strangle the business. I feel like if I put the pressure on it of needing to pay, you know, all the bills and all the sure. things, um, it would lose some of its sparkle for me. I also think that, I mean, like everyone talks about the golden handcuffs of benefits and retirement Mm -hmm. funds and all of those things. Um, That's pretty intense Mm -hmm. in terms of just layering that on to what would be kind of our monthly, you know, um, expenses. That would be really difficult. So, I mean, the business right now is bringing in the rough equivalent of my salary um, and both are six figures. So, Mm -hmm. Do I take home that from the business? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. I mean, with taxes and business expenses and whatever, that's not the money that's coming into the bank. But it allows us to have a really nice cushion to put towards things like a new car, which Mm -hmm. we bought this year, the kitchen renovation, which we had wanted to do for several years. And now we're basically investing all the money that's coming in through the business and putting it toward things like retirement accounts. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I could see in the future looking at something like, early retirement mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that that might come from this. But I also really enjoy my day job. I mm-hmm. mean, this is, I did not create the side business because I wasn't enjoying my job. Yes. It was more because I had other things I wanted to do. I do definitely identify as what um, Emily Wapnick calls a multi-potentialite. Like it's, <laughs> it would be very hard for one job to kind of contain mm-hmm. all of the interests mm-hmm. that I have. So I'm able to do a lot of very cool creative things with my day job, but having the side business allows me to really explore a lot of other things as well. I love that. And yeah, I that's great. Such, you're such an inspiration for lots of people listening as well. And it, it kind of hit me this year because I, you know, I left quickly, like burned all the bridges. I was like jumping. Right. And, um, and that's one way of doing it. And I've really tried to highlight that, um, not everyone wants to do that, that that's not even necessarily the smartest decision for lots of people. Um, and what's cool about showing just the different facets of running a business, what you're highlighting is it can be something on the side that you love to do and can create freedom and fe- flexibility, um, you know, in your life that we don't really get from a salary because we do have to keep, you know, negotiating for a pay raise or taking on the extra projects at, at work, right? And get stipends here and there. Um, and then it's like, oh, but if I create a business on the side, I can start to, you know, yeah, use that money to do other things in my life that the institution is unable to support me to do. So I think you're just a perfect example of that. And yeah, I mean, it hit me this year, surprisingly, I think it's been stacking. But this idea of that, like, oh, yeah, Lindsay, not everyone wants to build like a like a million dollar company or leave their job. I knew that part. I knew not everyone wanted to leave their job. But not everyone wants to grow this big giant business that they have to take care of. And that's actually okay. And like if we can resource, you know, collect our resources and make resources on the side, I guess I should say, then that means we're being better taken care of. We can take care of our students better, even if we do decide to stay into in teaching. So I love that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm definitely um, a fan of Paul Jarvis's work on Company of One. He recently yes. wrote a book called Company of One. And just this idea of uh, people say, like, when are you going to expand? When are you going to hire people? When are you going to quit your job? And it's like, that's not really my goal right now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I actually really like having a business where I have a lot of control over what we do, over what we start, over what we stop, over how it's done, how it's designed. And because I like so many of those things that are in the business, I don't want to outsource them to other people. Like I I think it's really fun to work directly with clients Mm. and to do the design work, to do the web design. 
Um, but there are some things like this year, I um, worked with a branding agency to do a rebrand for the business. And I'm just wrapping up that work. And I hired a coach to help me redesign a new a new keynote that I was developing. Nice. And so I definitely leverage kind of those kinds of options when I have them or when I need them. But for right now, I'm just really enjoying growing the business, seeing what we can do. And I'm really excited about the coach training that's going to be coming to see what that offers. Yeah, I'm excited. I think it'll be fun. And every year we do a couple new launches. So it's just it's a fun way to experiment and to see what you can do to really serve your Mm -hmm. audience. And as you learn more about what their needs are, you can experiment in all these different ways through, you know, courses and all kinds of other things. But um, the experimental part of the business has been, I think, probably the most fun aspect for me. Oh, that's so good because it's so funny because we coach our students through like launching their first courses. Typically, it's their first. And in the end, marketing is all an experiment. But I think you're, what you're highlighting that is showing up, at least in this conversation, is this idea of when the business has the responsibility of, <laughs> right, like taking care of the family, paying the bills, we put a lot of pressure on it. And I've experienced that myself. And it's part of my journey for sure. But this idea of it is an experiment, we're testing, we're seeing what works, we're communicating with our audience, we're making new offers, we're shifting the message, we're doing all the things. And if we can see it as fun, and exactly that an experiment, then we don't have that pressure. And it's always difficult to communicate that to people. But I think it's their perspective of what uh, the other side of that launch is or that new offer. If they're expecting some level of income and they don't hit it, of course, that's going to feel a lot, you know, I don't know what the word is, but like more um, stress inducing, I guess, because Mm -hmm. of, of what it means. And so we're constantly talking about that. So we use the language of experimentation, uh, testing, right. Data collection to just show people that, Hey, you're going to throw something out there and it may or may not work, but now we have some data to work with from that launch or that offer that you made. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, that's so true. And also that sometimes, you know, it just takes some repackaging Mm -hmm. to get something out there in a way that people are really going to connect with it. And it's so much to do with branding design, you know, making those making that messaging kind of connect with your audience. Um, But I would also say too, I was really invested in the beginning of launching the business in making sure that we were putting the money from the business back into Mm -hmm. the business Mm -hmm. and really using it to build up structures, systems, technologies. I wanted to test a lot of things to see what I liked. You know, I I bought a webinar platform in the first year, and then I didn't use it the next year, you know, like I, I wanted to really see what was going to be the best way to set things up and and what was the true cost yep. of running the business in the way that I wanted to run it. And that meant in the first year, I mean, I think we took a $5,000 salary draw to buy a new refrigerator. I mean, mm-hmm. like we put everything else back into the yep. business, paying the taxes, you know, like we also just didn't know like what it would be like to pay right? taxes, you know, like <laughs> we had to figure all that out. So I think that that's the other real pro of, of keeping a day job yes. while you're doing the business yep. is you can really try to get a sense of, what does it mean to not cut corners? Because I know a lot of people who start their businesses on a shoestring, like they're, they're really not able to do things in the way that they want. And they're constantly kind of struggling with quality and, you know, the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have to do that. Um, And that was a choice that we actively made to see what would it look like. And now that we know we're taking larger salary draws and we kind of know, you know, what we need to run the business. But if I were to create something new, like, for example, we for this Sotal by Design course that I um, created, we have a print workbook that we ship out to anyone who buys a license for this course. 
And obviously a print run is an initial investment, you know, um, if you want to get the pricing down low enough. And we, I think we did a print run of like 500 of these workbooks. Um, But that's an initial investment that you make in a product like this. And of course you make it back, you know, as people are buying the course, but I wouldn't have been able to do that if I wasn't kind of investing some of those financial returns back into the business. That's definitely one of, I mean, Derek knows from... right the three years we've been in business, just getting that all under control is something going from being a salaried professional (laughs) to just doing it and everything comes through me. Um, That whole thing of managing finances, profit, like cash flow in general has been a trial by fire. But (laughs) Mm -hmm. I also, I think there's a lot in what I've learned around actually making money online and having... um, you know, being in control of my finances in a way that I never have been in, t- in my entire life. And so it's been a learning experience and definitely something that's not easy. And I, I love the collect, like calm and collected way that you thought about how you're building your business on the side and um, the, the way that, you know, n- I don't think I could have done it that way. I'll say that because it, it just, for me, just making this decision was the thing that I needed to do. And there's something behind that in my story for sure. But um, just what it does take, exactly what you're saying, what it does take to pay your taxes, to <laughs> reinvest back into the business, to, all the stuff that you don't even think of when it adds up. You're just like, oh, wow, a six figure launch. Like, that's awesome. And then it's like, what actually comes from that? But it sounds like so much money. And it is. It's just recognizing what goes in to have that output, which I think is something that, um, yeah, the more I want to talk about that even more, because I think that that could be one of the things that maybe isn't as transparent in a lot of the businesses we're, we're running online. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Katie, could you share maybe what's coming out next for you? What's the next step in your business and where people can learn more about you and what you do? Sure. So um, I, like I mentioned, I'm in the middle of doing a rebrand. Um, I actually get the final designs from the branding agency this week. And so, yeah, it's really exciting. And I'll be spending probably the next couple of months slowly rolling that out. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess that's the other kind of lesson, if you haven't already heard it from what I've said, is like everything for me is slower. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't all happen. You know, I can't devote an entire day. I can't just say Mm. like, oh, this week I'm going to do this thing. Like I could because of the day job, like I have limited time. So I have kind of pulled back. I know how long it takes me to do things and I could do some things relatively quickly, but for things like the brand rollout, I'm really making the expectations for myself, hopefully very reasonable in terms of how I'm going to do that. So that is coming up. Um, That will also involve a complete redesign of my current website, Mm -hmm. which is at katielinder.work. And the domain name is probably going to be changing for that, but there'll be a redirect. So if you go there, um, you'll find a new site in just the next month or so. And then I'm also completely creating a new website for the coaching training. Mm-hmm. So that will be linked from my site, but it will be its own separate kind of space. Um, so that's coming. And then I also have a new book coming out in January of 2020 on alternative academic careers. Ooh. And um, I co-wrote that with two colleagues, Tom Tobin and Kevin Kelly. And it was such a fun experience working with them. Um, but I'm excited to see that kind of finally coming to fruition. And, and th- so that'll be out in the world in the next um, six months or so. And I'm sure that we'll be kind of talking more about that. I think that alternative academic careers, as you both know, mm-hmm. um, we need to keep talking about this. And yep. and as tenure track jobs just are getting less and less, 
there are so many other options for academics that are still wanting to stay in higher ed and, and think about it from a, a more non-traditional perspective. So that book includes a ton of profiles of people who've done academia kind of on their own terms in different ways. And I love that. I mean, that's one of the key components of my own business and my own personal brand is just you do this your own way. Mm. And um, there's a lot of confidence in that, in making those choices and, and really designing your job and your life, you know, in the way that works for you. So those are the big stuff that's coming up. I, of course, I'm going to continue to run. Um, I do virtual writing groups and other group coaching things that'll be happening this fall. And then, of course, my private coaching practice is continuing. Um, and then I'll be launching in a more public way in January of 2020, the mastermind I mentioned for mm. small business owners. So I did kind of a beta launch of that this year with eight women coming through it in a more private way. I just kind of reached out mm -hmm. to people that I thought might be interested. Um, but that'll be coming up too. And it's called Slow Hustle. So it's very focused on slowly building your business and doing it in a way that feels that. really manageable. <laughs> yeah, and not feeling like you have to do everything overnight, which can mm. be pretty overwhelming for people. So there's always a lot cooking. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I, your yeah, book, there's always a lot going on. Your book, I, I, it sounds so perfect for this audience, like exactly yeah. what people want to hear and learn about. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And, and your website is .work, right? With a W? Yeah, okay. it's katielinder.work. I will okay. be shifting it to a .com. Uh -huh. um, so that's coming soon. But yeah, for right now, katielinder.work. Got it. Cool. And you're hanging out on Twitter the most on social, would you say? Like the most connection or are you also other places like Instagram and Facebook? Yeah, I would say um, Twitter. I'm definitely there. You can find me at Katie double underscore Linder. And then I'm also pretty active on Instagram. And that's just Katie at or Katie underscore Linder, just one underscore. And I do a lot of Instagram stories um, mm. and just kind of sharing what I'm up to on a day to day basis. And I do a lot of list making and process oriented stuff. So um, if you're interested in kind of just seeing what it takes to run the business and, and do the job and all the things, um, you're welcome to follow me there. But through the those two social platforms and, and my website are pretty much where you can find me. Um, I do have a podcast that I'm about to rebrand along with everything else. Um, but you can find that at You've Got This is the podcast name. And then I also do um, a co-hosted podcast called Make Your Way, which is about academic small business um, in case folks want to look for that. And then I'm also at Research in Action, which is the podcast that I do for my day job, um, where I interview researchers from all over the world. <laughs> so um, those are easy places sure. to find me too. What's the the theme for You've Got This podcast? You've Got This is really focused on kind of productivity and I call it kind of thriving in academic life. So I cover things like writing and publication. Um, different tips and strategies for being productive. There's also a, some personal topics in there about just how do you juggle and do you know work-life balance. Uh, but the audience for that is primarily academics and higher education professionals who are looking for different tips and strategies about how to have a more positive um, work experience. And um, yeah, so it covers a, a range of things. But mm -hmm. that releases every Wednesday. Cool. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for hanging out, Katie. This has been great. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I learned so much. Yeah, thanks to you both. This was really fun. 